Good morning, church. For those of you who don't know me yet, appreciate you. (laughs) My name's Aaron. I'm the new youth and young adult guy here, and I want to just start this morning by telling you guys that I absolutely love your kids. We have a good time, and it's been such a blessing to my life to week after week be able to dig into God's word with them. One of the biggest pieces of joy that I have here is actually the Roots Room, watching those kids bury their faces in the Bible and help one another find Bible passages. It's awesome. I also want to say that it's a privilege to be able to stand before you and share God's word. But I got to be honest, I've been real nervous. It's my first time preaching, and I have the easiest topic to talk about. Rebuke. (laughs) Super fun, I know. It's easy for all of us, right? But guys, it's a loving and necessary part of our walk together. The Proverbs tell us over and over and over that it's the fool that hates correction. We're told that wounds from a friend can be trusted, but it's our enemy that multiplies kisses. So for us as followers of Christ, the question is not, should we judge, but rather, who do we judge? How do we determine right and wrong, and why do we correct? The prophet Isaiah makes it really clearly known to us in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. I say this kind of as a base foundation in the midst of a culture that can really easily shy away from full biblical teaching in exchange for what I call soundbite Christianity or cut and paste theology. We live in a time where it's easier and let's be honest, it's probably more pleasing to us to just pull out the parts of God's word that we like and disregard the rest. But we forget that these things weren't said in a vacuum. These things are part of a full body of teaching, and it's only when we can take that step back and view it in proper context then we can see what our Lord is trying to teach us. This is why Paul tells Timothy in his second letter, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myth. There's a study held by Arizona Christian University this last March that showed us that only 37% of American Christian pastors hold to a biblical worldview. That's shocking. That shows us that only roughly one-third of men who call themselves shepherd care about protecting God's flock and feeding them the word of God. The study actually shows us that in churches with a higher number of attendants, this percentage actually plummets. 
shows us that in America, the concern of the church is softening God's word to be more attractional and pull bodies in the door than it is being faithful to God. Guys, that's the definition of apostasy. And it certainly reminds me of the false prophets in Jeremiah's day. But it's for that very reason that we have written on our wall that we're willing to give up what we believe for the truth. That's why we consistently say we're going to plant our flag on the Bible. It's because all scripture is breathed out by God and all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. This morning, I'm going to try to help equip us. One of these soundbite teachings that I hear consistently in our world are the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 1. He says, judge not that you not be judged. And in a vacuum, this can even sound like a great teaching of acceptance and grace. But the problem is, it's an incomplete lesson. Even worse, it tends to get used as a deflection point when people try to hold each other accountable, right? How dare you judge me? Judge not, lest you be judged. But if we were to keep reading, we'll see that it's a call for us to first judge ourselves. To take the log out of our own eye so that we can properly take the splinter out of our brother's. It's a call for us not to judge hypocritically for sinful behaviors that we're engaged in. But if we were to just let Jesus finish his thought, he actually ends this by telling us to make judgments. He says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. How can we heed that warning from our Savior if we are to never judge? Which brings my mind back to those words from Isaiah. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Seems to me the teaching is not for us to never judge, but rather for us to judge rightly and to first examine ourselves. So as we get into this week's reading in our year in the Bible, we find ourselves right in the middle of Paul the Apostle rebuking the church in Corinth by judging their sin and even shaming them for engaging in certain behaviors. And Paul doesn't pull any punches. Rather, he boldly proclaims the ways of truth and he even instructs this church to excommunicate a member of the congregation so that Satan can destroy his flesh. That's harsh. But even in that strict judgment, we see love when we understand that the purpose of this is so that God may work on that man and save his soul in the last day. His eternal salvation is still the goal. And maybe the protection and salvation of the rest of the church as well. So guys, let's get into our Bibles here, 1 Corinthians 5, and we'll just read it. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. 
Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ... Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. We see in this passage that we're not to judge outside our body of fellow believers because in this life, God will judge the people of this world. But we are called to judge one another within the church. The universal church, all who bear the name of brother or profess belief in Jesus. Is this because we're full of hate and we desire to cause harm to and tension with one another? No. The sin causes the harm and the tension, and because we love that person, we confront that sin. Is this because we think we're better than anyone else? No. Just like that sin causes distance and tension between people, it causes distance and tension between people and God. And because we love that person and care about their eternal salvation, we confront that sin. So how do we do this? Well, we have the word of God, which is right and good and true. This is a beacon of light in a dark, dark world. See, the world has a different standard of right and wrong because it has rejected the way, the truth, and the life, but not us. We proclaim Jesus and we submit to him as Lord. It's no longer our own ways that we follow, but we pick up our cross and we follow his ways. And if there's still any confusion about the role that we as the saints play in judgment, it's going to be pretty quickly cleared up if we just keep reading into chapter 6. So let's do that. 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than the matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I think in reading these passages, a few things becomes abundantly clear. First, we are to judge. Because we follow the ways of righteousness, we ought to know right and wrong. We're to conduct ourselves according to the wisdom of heaven and judge accordingly. Because we proclaim Christ, we are to unashamedly judge the conduct we find ourselves surrounded by. And this is because we believe that his ways are right and good and true. Guys, this is why we're told in verse 3, do you not know that you are to judge angels, how much more than the matters pertaining to this life. But it's really important that we remember and hold tight to the fact that we don't judge according to our own judgments. We don't judge according to our ways or our feelings. Instead, we strive to uphold his ways and we follow suit behind his judgments. It's the way of righteousness that we've been so graciously given by God. We submit to the ways outlined in his word, not because it's going to earn our salvation. Remember chapter 5, verse 7, we are told that Jesus, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed to pay for our debt of sin. In the old covenant, they had to kill an animal without blemish, and that animal's blood would atone for their sin. But that was an inadequate sacrifice. Still, it was one that pointed to Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, without the blemish of sin, whose sacrifice became the perfect atonement. It's by his shed blood that we're covered. So we don't submit to the Bible to earn the free gift of life, but instead we submit to the Bible because it is right and good and true. It's our loving response in faith. These are those works laid out before us by the Father that prove that our faith is not dead. 
We're told that a people who live like the world will not inherit the kingdom of God. And because we trust that our God is not a liar, we die to ourselves and we follow his ways. It's because we're washed by the shed blood of the lamb and we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And in these two acts of God, we will be justified by the father on the last day. And in this we find the first of two overarching themes of correction to the church in Corinth. The first of two headers in how we are to judge rightly. Church, do not live like the world. Let's say that again. Do not live like the world. A few times in this letter, Paul lays it out pretty plainly for us. The sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, the thieves, the greedy, the drunks, the revilers, and the swindlers. These are those who live as the world lives. But for followers of Christ, this ought not be so. And such were some of you myself included. A couple weeks ago, on my way to church, I stopped off at the gas station for coffee and ran into an old friend from high school. I was wearing my Team Jesus sweatshirt, and we got talking about my new job here at Word of Grace. And he looked me in my eye, and he said, man, never in a hundred years would I have ever thought that you'd be doing that. Me neither, my dude. You see, the old me was a thief and a drug addict and a whore. And not just physically, but with ideology and philosophy, I would chase after any school of thought that would allow me to keep my sin without feeling too bad about it. And it's not that I stand here right now some perfect sinless man, but the whole course of my life has changed. It's by the grace of God that I walk a different path today. It's because the log has been taken out of my eye that I can stand up here without hypocrisy and tell you that the ways of the world lead to nothing but darkness. And I can have confidence in my salvation, not in the work of my own hands to somehow make myself good enough for God. That's impossible. But my confidence is in Christ and the work that he has done and is doing within me. I find great comfort in the rebuke in 1 Corinthians, knowing who wrote them. See, I can go to Acts 7 through 9, and I can read about Paul. I can read about his wickedness and sin. I can read about how he persecuted and murdered those who followed Christ. And I can read about Jesus, who valued Paul too much to just let him die in his sin who intervened to save his soul and use his life to advance the kingdom of God. Guys, I know that grace. I feel every piece of that story. I know the weight of my own sin and depravity. And I know the love and mercy found in a living God who died my death. 
but this doesn't mean I have no accountability today for how I walk. The shed blood of Christ does not mean that I can live to sin freely. His sacrifice does not mean that there's no longer any consequences at all for my continued sin. And though God has called us to freedom, we are still accountable to not use those freedoms to feed our flesh or make our brothers stumble. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. This is why I heed the exhortation that we find in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, where Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run so you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do this to receive a perishable wreath, but we, one that is imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. It's because there is great consequence to sin. Its wages are death. Guys, we can't live as if we don't know that, and in doing so, cause others to stumble. We cannot live pursuing the desires of flesh and of sin and so fool ourselves into thinking that we're living pleasing to God. Freedom in Christ found in his finished work on the cross is freedom from the bondage of sin. Not the freedom to sin without consequence. This is why Paul urges us through his letter to the church in Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Which leads me to the second overarching theme of judgment we find in this letter. Do not follow God falsely. Do not fake this walk. Do not falsify his gifts. Do not bring his holy name to vanity for our own self-edification and do not for one second think that we can attach God's holy name to our way and it magically makes it his way. That's no different than the original sin in the Garden of Eden. Making ourselves wise in our own eyes. Placing ourselves on his throne and making ourselves supreme judge of everything. Guys, this is why Paul had to write chapters 12 through 14. The Corinthians were taking these really great gifts from God and they were doing them their way instead of submitting to his way. And I really wish I had the time to unpack it all, but that's a whole sermon by itself. What we need to remember from that is that he is the king. We are not. We're just creation. When a scribe approached Jesus, he asked him, which commandment is most important of all? And our Lord and Savior answered by quoting Deuteronomy 6.5. He said, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. And here's the beautiful thing about these commandments. If we obey the first one, if we love God with all our emotions and all our thoughts and all our actions and all our energy, the second one comes about naturally without much effort. It's just what happens when we submit ourselves to the Lord of love. But he doesn't want fake converts. He doesn't want false followers. Jesus wants every bit of our being. He wants us to give him everything. And he is worthy of it all. Matthew 10, 34 through 39, Jesus tells us a really hard truth about himself and what our level of devotion to him should be. He says, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my name's sake, he will find it. See, Jesus draws a line in the sand. He says, you're either with me and for me or you're against me. And here's the call that he makes to those of us who wish to follow after him. You ready? Jesus says, come to me to die. Die to yourself. Die to yourself and live for me. First Corinthians chapter 10, we're called back to remember the exodus of Moses out of Egypt. And even though they were given great signs and wonders, and even though they were led by the cloud of God's glory, and even though they passed through the parted Red Sea, and even though they drank from the rock, which was Christ, God was not pleased with many of them, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Remember how often we're told that the Israelites were stiff-necked? Are we any different than them? Remember how often they whored after other gods? Are we any different than them? Remember how they loved their sin? Are we any different than them? Remember the purpose of what this historical event was trying to teach us. Moses, being a type and shadow of Christ, right? A lesser Christ, was leading God's people out of Egypt, which is representative of the world, through 40 years of life in the desert to sanctify and humble them, to prepare them for the promised land, which is eternal life in heaven that waits for us. Keep this in mind. 
as we read the warnings from Paul. And we'll go to 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 16. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? If we flip to 11, 27 through 32, Paul kind of finishes that thought and explains to us what he means when he says, whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. We see here the reason why Paul told them to cast that man out from amongst their midst so that Satan can destroy his flesh. It's so that his spirit may be saved on the last day. Guys, this is showing a different kind of love than our world and our current culture want us to show. It's not just blind acceptance, but the love of God cares about the state of our eternal soul. The love of God cares more about whether we live or die than how we may feel in any present moment. And we see that when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we won't be condemned along with the world. That reminds me of Hebrews 12, if we could turn there. We'll read 1 through 17, roughly. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Guys, this next sentence, I'm just going to let linger in the air for a moment. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. Why? So we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, though he sought it with tears. Guys, let us follow Christ while we still have time. Let us pick up our cross and follow him to life. And let us love one another with the love of God, caring more about one another's eternal soul. Guys, let's pray. Father, you are good, and we are not. You are holy, and we are not. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your adoption. Thank you for your son and his sacrifice. Father, have mercy on us. Father, show to us where in our hearts we need to die 
and we ask for the strength to pick up our cross and follow after Jesus. In his holy name we pray, amen.